It's that time of year again. Grab yourself a glass of eggnog as we explore Christmas's past, some of our favourite festive tunes here on Mostalgia. Welcome to Mostalgia. Happy Christmas. Adrian, when you submitted this idea to us here at Mostalgia HQ, you thought that would be a good thing to have a Christmas special because everybody has a Christmas special. I remember the Dukes of Hazard had a Christmas special. The A-Team had a Christmas special. Just like the Kaching on the start of I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, we're going to cash in on Christmas also. So every year you can listen to exactly the same show. Yeah, we won't degrade in any way. The tape won't mangle. So I shall begin with Christmas time. Don't let the bells end by the darkness. This one was released on the 15th of December 2003. It reached number two on the UK charts and was produced by Bob Ezrin. Tell me some facts about the darkness, Adrian. Facts. The lead singer Justin Hawkins came up with the chorus for this song long before the glam metal band were ever signed to a label. Now, the guitarist Dan Hawkins didn't think it sounded very Christmassy at all. The story continues years later when, signed to Atlantic Records and riding on a crest of success of their debut album Permission to Land, they had to plan their next move. But instead of releasing another single from the album with a Christmas themed video, they decided why not write a Christmas song? And Justin remembered they'd already written a chorus for one. So the darkness set to work. At this time, they were supporting Metallica at the RDS Arena in Dublin. Did you see them? I did not. I did not see Metallica until they played Slain. You answer as if I'm a detective and grilling you for a crime you might have committed. I did not. I did not, officer. I'm innocent of all charges of paying overinflated ticket prices to watch rubbish. <laughs> As you well remember, we stalked Pat Morley back in the day for Metallica tickets. We waited patiently, sitting on the ledge of the chipper window, waiting for Pat Morley's mobile. Yeah, there was a mutual friend of ours, actually, who used to disappear into Pat Morley's house of a night and then used to come out the next morning offering free tickets to people. And then he got a job, actually, where Pat Morley worked, which is the Irish state broadcaster. And Pat interesting chap that he was when they tried to put him out to pasture they couldn't really find a reason to get rid of him so what they told him was here's a lot of uh, tapes go to your house and digitise them for us and they gave him a truckload to, to get him out of the office so when he went home to do all the digitising they just took away his room sounds very cruel yes oh. Pat Morley give us some Metallica tickets I think was uh, the phrase that we used to sing Pat to him Morley <laughs> But this is not about Metallica, this is about the darkness. Yeah. Do you think the darkness were the shot in the arm that UK rock and metal needed? Or was it just self-parodying bullshit? Well, that was the thing about the darkness. I never really understood, were they a parody band or, or were they serious? Now, they're still going to this day and they're still, yeah, yeah. still making albums. Justin is still mouthing off on a podcast. Not as good as what we do, but he's there. He's the big mouth, all right. They were a serious band, but they did cross the line into parody a small bit with Justin's falsetto vocals at the time unlike anything else that was out there in 2003 to paraphrase Frank Zappa when he talked about jazz in the early 2000s metal wasn't dead it just smelled funny <laughs> Nostalgia with Taylor and Bernie I love these guys this song by the way Christmas time don't let the bells end fanar fanar also has a lyric about the ring piece in it yeah I'm going to get that oh you're going to get that with the facts are you that's the whole reason it's oh. here I bought some Christmas jumpers and I put loads of fairy lights up in the bus. This was way before Christmas, by the way, just to get us in the mood. 
said Dan. Bob Ezrin, the producer of this song, had previously did songs featuring children's choirs on classics like Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, Boy Pink Floyd, and mm. School's Out from Alice Cooper. He liked the school-related theme songs, didn't he? And also interesting was the fact that the children's choir would sing lyrics containing bell end and ring piece. Excellent. But you already knew that. <laughs> Which is the only reason it's included on this show, I expect. To get a bit of a laugh, yeah. We're all for the cheap laughs here. You think you're going to get some sophisticated conversation? Get out of it. We're just a gristle at the end of the turkey leg. I'll get to my serious Christmas messages towards the end. Oh, uh, yes. Fact. It had been a busy year of touring and promotion for the darkness. By the time it got to the week of relation now, leading up to Christmas, I couldn't have given less of a fuck said Justin, but it was the bookies' favourite to be the UK chart Christmas number one. Surprisingly, it was beaten by the melancholy Mad World, a Gary Jules and Michael Andrews cover of the Tears for Fear song which featured in the movie Donnie Darko. So diving into the song a little, Justin's lyrics are based around spending Christmas with a loved one who is distant and it's just that time to get our Christmas that keeps you going throughout the year. How we cling each Noel to that snowflake's hope in hell that it would end. Just don't let the bells end and in the video he's reclining in front of the fire on a shag pile <laughs> carpet in laced up white spandex the video has the band unwrapping presents in their Christmassy log cabin resplendent in their spandex and Justin Hawkins's love interest is played by his then girlfriend and band manager Sue Whitehouse see that's what they always do remember the cars who's going to drive you home that was the girlfriend of Rick I can't <laughs> even say Justin was driving her home that <laughs> night <laughs> and then you had David Coverdale and Tawny Katane on the the bonnet of his car as he here he went again she was in a, a couple of them I think there was a trilogy of White Snake videos uh, the deeper the White Snake <laughs> sure if I was a famous rock star I'm sure I'd film a video with Megan Fox flapping her <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Why would well, you not? We'll come a little bit later, actually, to another very famous rock star who did canoodle for a Christmas single with a quite famous model oh. on the cover back in the 90s. But we'll come Jabba Jabby! Shut up! <laughs> you opened up their presents too early! Christmas time, don't let the bells end by the darkness is your first proposal for not a These proposal, are- it's a submission. I'm submitting this as my piece of Christmas nostalgia. Status quo. The commonest patch on denim backs in the 1970s. The Brit Boogie Rock Boys, Francis Rossi, Rick Parfit, Alan Lancaster and John Coughlin had their heads down, down, deeper and down, rocking all over the world, commanding the 70s with big moustaches, lank hair, twin telecasters and jeans so tight squirrels' nostrils flared. Sponsored by Levi's, mainstays at Reading Festival, headliners of Donington in 1982, you can't think of the 70s without status quo, really. An album a year going platinum with more than 300,000 copies each sold in the UK alone in the 70s. By the 80s, however, it had all gone to shit. <laughs> but what's this got to do with Christmas, really? Well, we scoop it up again during status quo scuttery phase in 1988 with a Christmas number five in the UK charts. Played first, actually, on the Friday Rock Show on the 2nd of December 1988. This number five hit single that we're going to play, that we haven't mentioned the name of yet, because it's a present to unwrap and then you'll be so surprised, was reviewed by Phil Wilding in Kerrang! issue 216 on December the 3rd, 1988. He says they have Mike Tyson on the cover and you only need to hear this once and then you'll understand why a marketing manager somewhere is hitting the bottle. I never believed they could be this bad. They were once the icon of denim clad unwashed young chaps everywhere. They are now Radio 1's primetime rock act. I feel insulted. Go choke. I hate this. I hate this. I hate it. Status quo had burnt their bridges by burning bridges. 
Do you want to listen to it? Do you remember? No. It? No. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, 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 yeah, burning bridges. Yeah, throw it on there. <laughs> All right, so status quo. I forgot what we were talking about for a second. Bit of a Celtic influence on that song. It's a shit song, but it reminds me of Christmas. That's the point. Okay. Because it was a Christmas song in 1988. And it gives you nostalgia. It does. And this is the point of this show, right? Nostalgia <laughs> <laughs> with Taylor and Bernie. I like it. Moving on to your one now. Number three. Just wasn't ready there. I was getting into the quo. You never get out of the quo. So my next Christmas track is Driving Home for Christmas by Chris Rea. Nice. A bit of Chris Rea, his voice like chocolate. Chris released this song on the 10th of December 1988. Mm. It was in fact recorded in 1986. Wait a minute, so one week <clears throat> before Burning Bridges was released, Chris Rea released his song? Oh, wow. It would have been around the same time, but... Um, but this one was actually a good song. Yeah, Driving Home for Christmas never actually got into the charts. Well, shit, Why? like the call got into the <laughs> charts. <laughs> this only peaked at number 53. <laughs> Flop! <laughs> <laughs> Shit charts! That's what I read yesterday about Slippery When Wet that only got to number 36 and then the other crap that came later got to number one all the time. As you grow older, you realise that the charts aren't really an accurate gauge for what's good and what's not. It's what's still being played 20 years later. Is Or it's what Stock Aiken and Waterman were sending out their gophers to go and buy up in the stores to push it up the charts even though it didn't Excuse deserve it. Excuse me now. That's, uh, <laughs> I won't have that talk. There was no cheating involved. Of course All not. Of Kylie's number ones were genuine. Legitimate. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll mention Kylie and Chris again a little bit later. Can't but wait. <laughs> back to driving home for Christmas. Chris, now I thought he was a bit of a boring lad, to be honest. But then I heard Driving Home for Christmas. Now Chris tells us he wrote this song in 1978. Rhea needed a spin back home to Middlesbrough. He got his wife to drive him back. He chose this option as it was cheaper than traveling by train. Uh, he chose this option because at the time he was a little bit financially restricted as he was no longer in a record contract. Mm -hmm. In fact, during this particular car journey, he also considered abandoning his singing career and going back into the family restaurant business. Things were that bad. Now during the drive back north, they were getting stuck in heavy traffic and snow was falling. So Chris was there thinking about having no record contract, going back into the family business, giving up on singing and looking out the window and all these motors stuck in traffic with miserable faces on them. So ironically, he started singing, we're driving home for Christmas in a kind of a ironic fashion. But inspiration had hit him. He was thinking, shit, this could be a song. And he started scribbling lyrics down in the car. Uh, he also claims he intended this song to go to Van Morrison, but he ended up not giving it to him in the end. Because then a much beloved perennial Christmas song would not be associated with a fat bigot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Driving home for Christmas has since grown legs and is played every Christmas. It's probably one of the better known festive classics. Yeah, for sure. But he was scared that he'd be forever remembered just for a Christmas song and not for all the other great songs he did like Road to Hell or I Can Hear Your Heart Beating and other that, stuff. Other stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, Chris. That's all we remember you for. <laughs> on the beach. Do, do, riff do, on do, that. Do. So he refused to play it live until 2014 at the Hammersmith Odeon. Chris recalls that the gig took place on the 20th of December and the road crew were badgering him to do it. So he goes, If I'm singing this fucking song, we're going to do it properly. 
It probably went out and hired 12 massive snow cannons. After more than 25 years, it was finally happening. The crowd were going wild, driving off Christmas. Chris was there shooting off snow cannons and he ended up unloading three feet of artificial snow into the stalls. This triumphant moment ended up with the venue charging Chris Rhea 12 grand to clean it all up. <laughs> Poor Chris. <sighs> but yeah, one of my faves. Gives me the old buzz every year when I hear that. And thinking about driving up to see the fam, heading along the N11, driving home for Christmas. I can't wait to see those faces <laughs> with their hands out looking for money, complaining about everything that's been happening. The same old miserable faces. Does that driving home for Christmas give you any nostalgia? Let's have a listen and see if it does. Can you see me tinsel and me lights? Come on. Come on, lad. Where's your Christmas spirit? It just reminds me of Larry Gogan. <laughs> the golden hour. <laughs> Mug of tea in the studio. I can't hear it. What <laughs> <laughs> <Mug> take? <laughs> I just dancing around the place. <laughs> You're having a right laugh and I can hear nothing. <laughs> It was amazing. It's a very simple story of, of how it happened. Imagine the amount of money he rakes in every year for that. Oh yeah, the, the royalties for these Christmas yeah. songs, once they catch on and they're much listened to every year That's played by every radio station or in every single shop on the high street that you're going in at the last minute to try to get some cheap present for the missus so she doesn't beat the shit out of you. Cheap present. <laughs> and there's Chris in the little tan eye. Get my feet back on the holy ground. <laughs> <laughs> My feet back on Molly's ground. <laughs> Pop Marley's ground! <laughs> so what's your next? Alright, so number four tonight on our Nostalgia Christmas special is Twisted Sister Heavy Metal Christmas. The 12 Days of Christmas. Do you know this one? No. Nope. From the album A Twisted Christmas, it's the sixth and final studio album by D, JJ, Jojo, AJ, PJ and Duncan, releasing it on the 17th of October 2006. By this time, they're all force-fed up to the eyeliner with each other, couldn't stay hungry, they were just not going to take it anymore, so decided to bury their twisted legacy with this monstrosity featuring classic Christmas songs metalized. More's the pity, as at one time in the early 1980s, Twisted Sister, along with Quiet Riot, Rat and Motley Crue were the finest gateway drugs of metal for aspiring teenage American rockers. And in D. Snyder, Twisted Sister had a shrewd, acerbic, six-foot transvestite gargoyle bellowing their anthems to the masses. A true Yule Snyder classic, this. I want to rock! I've no facts about them. That's just it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Twisted Sister, yeah. Can imagine the last album of a quite successful rock band from the 80s was a Christmas album. <laughs> it's all about getting played every year and making that cash to uh, finance your retirement. Yeah. So if they can get a good Christmas album out there, they're set up for life. They don't need to record again. Anyway, so when we talked about what songs we'd like to bring to this show, I thought, well, I'm not going to play the generic cliche stuff that you seem to like. Mm -hmm. Because you're edgy, man. You still have the hair. You can't see it, but it's still there. Phantom hair. I have phantom hair. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And the dislocated eyebrow. I thought, okay, well, I'll bring some heavy metal Christmas songs, none of which are very well known or famous. I <laughs> wonder why. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, thanks for your contribution. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Shall we continue on to the next This is going to be like heavily weighted, dear listener, to Adrian's choices and all the facts about how it was mass marketed and won the hearts of everybody and forever played and annoying you every Christmas. Well, well speaking of being mass marketed and the commercialization of Christmas, I bring you I Believe in Father Christmas by Greg Lake. What the Ooh. fuck? <laughs> which is an overt critique of these things. I like this song. Greg Lake was a member of which bands? Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yeah. King Crimson originally. Yeah. So we actually wrote this with Peter Sinfield, one of the members of King Crimson. I believe in Father Christmas reached number two in the Christmas charts in the UK, but was kept off the top by Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, 1975, so. A Sinfield that said, I got beaten by one of the greatest records ever made. I would have been pissed off if I'd been beaten by Cliff. Cliff Richard. Sinfield, there's a good quote where he explains uh, what the lyrics were about. He says, it was based on an actual thing in my life when I was eight years old. I came downstairs to see this wonderful Christmas tree that my mother had done. I was that little boy. Then it goes from there into the wider thing about how people are brainwashed into stuff. Then I thought, this is getting a bit depressing. So he changes up a bit and he has a hopeful, cheerful verse at the end. That's the bit where me and Greg would have sat together and done it. And then I twisted the whole thing with the last line, the Christmas you get, you deserve. And this was actually a play on the government you get, you deserve. He was comparing Santa Claus and Christmas to Jesus it was all a bit cynical and that's why I liked it it appealed to your rampant cynicism didn't it I have that cynical side I won't lie I won't lie man when I believed in Father Christmas I looked to the sky with excited eyes I was out driving one day recalls Greg and it was playing on my mind and all of a sudden it occurred to me that the tune of Jingle Bells fitted over it I thought I wonder if this could be a song about Christmas Hark the Angels Did Sing. Recorded in August 1975 with Greg Lake on vocals and his 12-string guitar, backed by a 100-piece orchestra. And the orchestra was conducted by Godfrey Salmon and a 30-piece choir. Now, Godfrey has an interesting story about it because he said it was very cold on the day and it was taking a long time to start the recording and people were getting antsy and bored. And he said to amuse the choir, how about we get a stripper to amuse him? And somebody actually did book one. Godfrey recalls she went straight over to the lead violinist and started to bury his face into her huge breasts. He went bright red. He was really straight laced and didn't want it. And some of the players from the orchestra, they went to the front to have a better look. And that only made things worse. All of a sudden, lads with the big oboes coming straight through the lads. (laughs) And someone had put their foot through the double bass. Some of the women in the choir were going, that's disgusting. She was only there for like five minutes. But by the time she left, there was total desolation and destruction. This guy was crying about his double bass. Angry women. Guys cheering. <laughs> so anyway, money was spent, people got reimbursed, and they recorded the song in the first take. And so we have the song I Believe in Father Christmas, which is still played on the radio today, nearly 50 years later. So we're halfway through now. Of our favourite Christmas songs. <laughs> Greg Lake, I like that one. Good pick. I support that. You might not support my pick next, though, (laughs) either. (laughs) This is Ronnie James Dio and Tony Iommi with Rudy Sarzo and Simon Wright. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Continuing the Christmas cheer here on Mostalgia, we wish you a merry Xmas and a head-banging new year. 
Nothing that metalling musos love to do more than to collaborate on charity singles, cover albums, come together in the studio and chat over <laughs> how many they spit-roasted on the bus back in the day as Ingwie Malmsteen squeezes in through the door and bores everyone to fuck with another Blackmore solo. The all-star collection of rock artists doing NAF albums is a long and distinguished one, and most of them, if not all, are truly shit. This one may be more shit than others, for here are our hastily heralded hairy men under the banner of Who Wanted the Cash the Quickest. They reinterpret Christmas carols for a one-of-a-kind listening experience, so say Armory Records, the unfortunates who published this. Initially released on October 14th, 2008, not even for Christmas, but well in advance, this Scrooge-fest boasts members of Foo Fighters, Motorhead, Kiss, Dio, ZZ Top, Black Sabbath, Anthrax, Queensryche, Rat, and Alice scooper and none of these we've covered on nostalgia before significant i let you be the judge on that all of these guys are badly singing on such holiday classics as run rudolph run santa claus is coming to town deck the halls and grandma got ran over by a reindeer christmas classic all produced by famed journeyman guitarist bob kulik brother of bruce who's bruce kulik i know the name did he work with bon jovi or somebody oh you're close with the bouffanted hairspray metalers of the 80s poison oh you're getting closer <laughs> both playing at one time or another for the 1980s washed face version of kiss bruce kulik played on crazy crazy <laughs> i like that washed face <laughs> The standout on this album is from Ronnie James Dio and Tony Iommi, Buffon bassist Rudy Sarzo and Tubby Tub Thumper Simon Wright. Quoted Ronnie JD at this time of the release of the album. It was a great opportunity to play homage to my least favourite holiday. The songs are fresh and heavy and the performances are equally classic. It's a magical way to change your holiday listening. Right you, man on the silver mountain you, stargazing at naked wizards with neon wands, we'll be the judge of that. God rest ye Ronnie and God rest ye merry gentlemen. Aman Amarth did Viking Christmas. That was a close contender to be included on the show tonight. Sounds like a good one in the halls of Valhalla. Maybe we'll come back for Nostalgia Christmas Special Part 2. There's so many songs, man. So many songs. All right, moving on. Number seven. This one you're gonna love. It's the single Do They Know It's Christmas. The artist is Band-Aid 2. Now, everyone is familiar with the enormously successful Band-Aid charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas, which assembled an all-star cast of early 80s singers to raise money for famine victims in Ethiopia. But do you remember its forgotten ginger stepchild, Band-Aid 2? It's like the nightmare of Christmas shite past has come back to haunt us, Adrian, as we go under the covers on Christmas Eve and the socks at the end of the bed. And here comes that little cow, Sonia, in through the door, followed by Jason, Kylie and the Bross brothers. Matt Aitken in 2004 complains it has been airbrushed from history. (laughs) (laughs) And we've dug it up. We've exhumed it, especially here. Using... My forum on this podcast, I'm going to jog everyone's memories. Released in 1989, it was a call to arms from Bob Geldof to producers Stock Aitken and Waterman to raise more money for the needy. Pete duly cancelled his wedding and got on the phone and started calling the artists. Get here now, guys. Those Africans need us. 
These blockbuster stars were Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan at the height of their fame at this time. Kylie was chosen to kick it off with the first line, followed by Chris Rhea beautifully complimenting her. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We'll have a when listen we now. Spread and <laughs> it was recorded on Sunday, 3rd of December, 1989. It was the Christmas number one in the UK charts and spent three weeks at the top. Two members of Bananarama appeared, being the only artists from the original Band-Aid to appear again on the second version. She's weathered very well, like a strong, firm oak in your back garden. Okay. That you can sit at on your bench and admire. Well, I don't want to be thinking about your strong, firm oak in the back garden. And then you want to get up, stretch yourself a bit, and climb up it and rub yourself off the bark. Continue. I'm your Venus. Anyway, it also featured such luminaries as, do you remember, Big Fun, D-Mob, The Pasadenas, Jimmy Somerville, Sonia, and Technotronic. That just sounded like you just opened the plug and the effluent pipe there and said all those things to me. Let's look at this. The roster and the quality of the vocals on this song were hugely inferior to the original. Yeah. But they had that lovely jaunty, stock kicking water. Let's help the Africans, Spoke. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of jingly bells. You think about the original Band-Aid and you had some great vocalists like Paul Young. Sting. Bono. I would maybe put Bono. <laughs> but yeah. Wait, just because we're Irish, we just can't automatically hate Bono. He's, he's not He's not technically a great singer, but he definitely was the standout line on that with his impassioned and delivered. Well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. The angelic vocals of Paul Young. Post toast days with It's Christmas time. Boy George had a great line. Boy George. In our world of plenty, we can spread a smile joy. I think his line was done by Big Fun and Jimmy Somerville or something. And it sounded like a big gay choir. We can spread a smile of joy. It was even more camp than the original. I remember the Band-Aid 1 singers for each line. I certainly yeah. do not remember the Band-Aid 2 yeah. one. Lisa Stansfield was there. She vibrated and warbled her way through. No rain, no river flow. The famous, if not very sympathetic line from Bono was done by Jason Donovan, who can't sing, and Matt Goss, who hilariously oversang. <laughs> well, Drop the boy, drop the boy. <laughs> George Michael and the Pet Shop Boys politely or wisely, depending on your take, declined to participate in Band-Aid 2. Shrewd move. Go back and listen to it. And I'd like to think my money went to charity because I didn't buy the first one. I bought Band-Aid 2. Good Lord. The <laughs> clanging chimes of doom. <laughs> right. Departed move on. your money from your pocket. Yes, let's move on. <laughs> We'll take a slight interlude for all the songs that we're playing tonight and just enter the Unflushable Christmas Stank Award Ceremony. Now, what is the Unflushable Christmas Stank Award Ceremony? Well, it's, Tell me. it goes to, and a turkey leg drum roll, Mr. John Bon Jovi for creating, Yay. again and again, shit Christmas songs. Five times over, he's the undisputed king of Christmas shite past. One, he tried punishing us with jealousy for belching garlic breath at Cindy Crawford up close on the cover of 1994's Please Come Home for Christmas. Look at her, gagging, and not for a shagging of the John Bon. Seemed this song shifted some units in 1994, scoring a number seven Christmas chart position. You remember that? I do. 
disemboldened John Jovi to try again in 2020, where number two on the Christmas Stank Award, as Adrian seems to hold aloft a plastic Christmas tree with a fake light on the top of it. Ha <laughs> he's killed it! The Christmas tree lights have got out on him! So, number two. He caused befagged and snaggletoothed minstrel Shane McGowan to finally slide off the back of this mortal coil as John committed oral atrocity on Christmas classic Fairy Tale of New York. You're a bum, you're a braggart, you've lost all your swagger in the world around town, you ain't much in the bed. If that wasn't enough, Chris. Everyone loves Shane, he's a fucking legend hero, it's a name to say, say, slap from. If that wasn't enough crucifixion for you, he three roped in all the Bon Jovi boys to share his Hall of Shame again with 2023's Christmas Isn't Christmas. Like a lovelorn lad, there's Jovi John in Santa's pub, as it was called, wobbling and warbling on stage, his bandmates ignoring him. But John doesn't care. He does it because he can. And then he spots ex-guitarist Richie Sambora outside, pissing up against the frosted window, laughing the head off. But let's go back to 1994 again for number four of the Unflushable Christmas Stank Award. The B-side to Please Come Home for Christmas was? No idea. It's the dubiously titled Backdoor Santa. Whatever John is offering here, it's not what Bon Scott was offering in his Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. No, John's stinking the cheese, honking like a donkey on this Clarence Carter song. As he stretches for the notes, we stretch for the eject. And that's four. Four unflushable Christmas thanks. But what about unflushable stank number five? Can they make it a clean sweep? <gasps> we go back to 1980 and Cousin Tony just wanted to help young John. What was that song, Adrian? Was this the Star Wars song? It was. R2-D2, we wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Bebop boop bloop. John, you give Christmas songs a bad name. <laughs> See what you did there? I like the little pun. You give Christmas songs a bad name. You sure do, John. Mosh Dalja with Taylor and Bernie. I love these guys. I'd say this one is a bona fide certified Christmas classic. It's Last Christmas by Wham. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not Christmas until Whamageddon has struck. When you first hear Last Christmas, when you're standing in the shop, getting in the car and switch on the radio. When you're being rushed in on the gurney into the emergency ward. <laughs> There's George and Andrew. At the time, George Michael was 21 years old when he wrote this song. And he performs and plays every instrument on the song. It was, in fact, written in George Michael's childhood bedroom in 1983 during a stay back at his parents' house with Andrew. And this, as Andrew recalls, the room in which we had spent hours as kids recording pastiches of radio shows and jingles. Like Ooh. me and you. Oh my God. <laughs> Only they wrote a really cool Christmas song. Only they were <laughs> successful. Yeah. Had we been successful, you'd be the dead one. That's it. So thank God for being unsuccessful, eh? Better to be alive. Yeah, so that, that was interesting. Michael played Ridgely the introduction and chorus melody to Last Christmas. And Ridgely later recalled it as a moment of wonder. 
So all that was involved in the recording studio was a Lynn drum machine, a Roland Juno 60 and sleigh bells. Brilliant. Simple. It's very funny at this time, Wham obviously marketed as a boy band, but essentially they're normally puppets of the record company. But George was taking more of an interest in it and more of a control of all of the little parts of what they were doing, taking the creative reins. So much so that engineer Chris Porter, who was one of the few given access to the studio during recording, he wanted to play the sleigh bells, but George wouldn't even let him do that. He wanted to jingle his own bells. <laughs> Which he went on to do in public, in car parks and forests forevermore. Again. He was uh, once beaten and twice shy. Yeah, you're getting now, you're getting the nostalgia that Christmas spirit. <laughs> I keep my distance, but you still catch my. Those moments years ago in the Christmas discos, you salivated into some young one's mouth and, <laughs> and there's George's dulcet tones in the background. Fingers down into the lip of the <laughs> jeans. She's pulling the hand back up. Says, "Don't you go down there. Have me flowers." <laughs> <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> You're a dirtbird. <laughs> Again, this song was recorded in the summer, August. To get them in the mood, just like the darkness and all of the other lads <laughs> on this nostalgia special, they took up a few Christmas decorations and lights, even like me. <laughs> you see that, yeah. <laughs> just it must be very the hot there when you're covered in tinsel. The arrangement is quite simple, and George, who was not really a musician, painstakingly played the keyboards with one or two fingers. <laughs> can imagine that actually and what did Andrew do did he just sit in the corner and just fume it's interesting there's always a joke that Andrew was the useless one mostly he was but he was the guy who emboldened George who gave George was kind of an insecure character so Andrew was his muse yeah, mm. he was a childhood mate and, and he was the confident one and he gave him the confidence. In fact, if you, if you look at the cover for this single, they're dressed up in, in bad Christmas clothes. Andrew looked after that side. He, he picked what clothes they had to wear. The oh. white jumpers and all that. The wake me up before you go, go video. And yeah, choose life. White t-shirts and, and mm. the, the tight shorts. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd just like to say in our long and storied unsuccessful career that thank you for being my muse. You've helped me be I, very confident. <laughs> Thank you. And thank yeah, you for choosing the outfits that we're wearing today. Yes, that's a rather fetching black t-shirt you're wearing. Why couldn't we have been successful? Yes. George was, however, a great songwriter, and he put together these, I would describe as magical words, describing a lover betrayed, dumped at Christmas time. And didn't the video <laughs> include, who were they, these girls that were in the video? Pepsi and Shirley, wasn't Pepsi it? Pepsi and Back Shirley, in- yeah. Oh, Shirley. <laughs> she'd be like now a strong sycamore rooted for years out the back garden and he'd be standing there on a windswept December afternoon and he'd be looking up at her little white top on her uh, back to last Christmas anyway and the video was recorded in a Swiss resort Sass V during this time again back to him taking creative control he'd constantly be checking the takes on the video and insisting on edits where he didn't like the angle on his face Marshall with Taylor and Bernie there was a certain drive to him. I think the Wham split was fairly amicable. I think Andrew knew and he enjoyed every minute of it. So it all ended very well. The best story that I remember from Wham actually when they had broken up is that Ridgely went into a club. He got his agent to notify all the Fleet Street reporters that he'd be in this club. And so when he'd come out the side entrance, they'd all take photos of him and he'd be in the news the next day in the newspapers and yeah. the gossip pages. And no one turned up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Most
This was released on the 3rd of December 1984. It was recorded at Vision Studios in London, produced by George Michael. It very later on got to number four on the US Billboard chart in 2023. That was probably as a result of that movie. And Oh, when Richard Curtis had Emily Clark have a yeah. wonderfully goofy play on words about last Christmas I gave you my heart. So it's like some type of biological heart transplant going on. I didn't watch the movie, but I hope you and your girlfriend enjoyed it. <laughs> I didn't watch it either. <laughs> Just what I heard. I was I watching Bruce Willis. Fucking diehard. <laughs> you can't watch Amelia Clark anywhere. Her eyebrows are very distracting. Going well, for the I was watching it. the Game of Thrones. There was more than that. That was distracting me, I tell you. Oh, Khaleesi with the bapso. Are oh, you like Carl Drogo? Go. <laughs> <laughs> The song originally only reached number two. Ironically, it was held off the number one spot by our aforementioned Band-Aid number one, which George Michael also sang on. So he did get to number one, kind of. He, he was, well, he was very upset that Last Christmas never got to number one. He was a stroppy love, wasn't he? But in fact, it did. On New Year's Day in 2021, 36 years later. And he wasn't around to enjoy he, it. Uh, sadly, yeah, that's a sad thing. He wasn't around to see it. But it finally became the actual Christmas number one in 2023. When no one really cared. How many copies that actually sold? What does a, a sold single mean? It's not a seven inch piece of vinyl anymore. It's a stream. I suppose what matters was what it sold in the 80s physically. It was one of the best selling singles of the 80s. Oh, millions, yeah. And there, Does there it really were, matter? Think Still about played it. years and years later and whoever's getting the money for it is getting loads of dosh every year. Makes lots of people happy and lots of people have the first snogs in the discos to it. And, and a seven-inch single stuff. was always a great little Christmas present to receive. Something that you could give your sister or your brother. You just go to the shop and buy what you liked and wrap it up and give it to them. And then you'd play it. Now, buy them a 12-month subscription to Spotify. They'll be delighted. But it's not the same. You can't hold it in your hand. You can't unwrap it. You can't try to wrest it from your sibling's hand and break it and then your father has to slap you around <laughs> and uh, more stories about Michael's <laughs> Christmas childhood memories on the next Nostalgia Christmas special Nostalgia the biggest and arguably the definitive Christmas song for decades and here we're going to argue about this because you've laid it down now that maybe Last Christmas by Wham maybe. is the definitive maybe. Christmas song in your head but in my head it's a little bit different the definitive Christmas song for decades was the Christmas UK number one for 1973 cementing Slade as the UK's most popular band of the time Slade guitarist Jim Lee was like Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction he was standing in the shower thinking and he came up with the majority of this hallowed anthem. Lee said that Slade singer and Adrian's namesake for his underpants, Noddy Holder, had... <laughs> <laughs> have you been working in the Christmas Cracker Factory? I have, have. <laughs> had written the chorus of it in 1967 and Noddy played it to him and Lee didn't record it. He didn't write it down. He says, I don't use tape recorders. I just remember everything and if something's been written 10 or 15 years ago, it stays up there in my head. I never forgot that chorus and I was in the shower and it all flopped out in front of me. <laughs> he didn't say that. Noddy finished the song at his mother's house in Walsall and speaking to the Daily Mail in 2007, he said, We decided to make a Christmas song and I wanted to make it reflect the British family Christmas like. Economically, the country was up its creek. The miners had been on strike, along with the gravediggers, the bankers and almost everyone else. I think people really wanted something to cheer them up. 
and so did I. That's why I came up with the line, look to the future now, it's only just begun. Once I got the line, does your granny always tell you that the old ones are the best? I knew, I got a right cracker on my hands. This song was number one when we were merely months old, Adrian. With the Sun newspaper at the time saying, you've never had it so bad. Facts. Selling over 1 million copies in its first pressing, Noddy has referred to this song as his pension scheme, as the song earns an estimated half a million a year, thanks to royalties. Now, I don't know if it's half a million each, or who the writers are exactly. I didn't even do that deeper research on it. <laughs> Fuck's sake. I was drinking wine. I was just typing stuff into the Word document. You know how it is. <laughs> Glamrock King Slade ruled over the Sweet, Mud, Shwaddy Waddy, and Gary Glitter from 1971 to 1974. Number one after number one. Pig ugly, but glowing with pub charisma. Just having a laugh, roaring into your face to grab your braces and dance. Christmas up until then was sentimental, tearful, confusing, and miserable. One thing that it had emphatically not been was rock and roll. Slade changed that forever. They made it sound like something Emperor Caligula would have been sorry to miss. And so, don your sideburns and high heels, expose your grin, pump up the hair, get your flying V and your tinsel. And here's to you. Merry Christmas. Everybody's having fun. Look to the future now. Only just begun. A great Christmas song. I like it because it's the Christmas you have in your home. It's very grounded, the stuff that happens to me and you. What happened to me when I was young is that the mother would get up at 4am and cook everything and make everything and drink a bottle of whiskey as she did it. And by 9am when the, the turkey was cooking in the oven, she was on the floor. <laughs> I just, the minute you opened your mouth, I was just waiting for a dark story to come out. <laughs> Christmas Where? wasn't good to you, was it? Where's mummy? <laughs> She's on the floor, passed out. <laughs> Who's going to cook the Christmas dinner, Daddy? Daddy? Daddy went out the back to cough and <laughs> load his pipe up with Mellow Virginia. <laughs> Christmas is fondly remembered. But Slade were on the television, at uh, the Top of the Pops retro specials, because it's a great, solid, crunchy sound. A lot of those early 70s glam bands were influenced by the doo-wop 1950s Teddy Boy period, and that musical rhythm, that very simple swinging rhythm, a little bit crunchier with the new amps and guitars that they had in the early 70s, made Noddy roar into the microphone, and it sounded like hardcore. You're having a hardcore Christmas. Makes me nostalgic for the Christmases when I was at home. Christmas dinner around two o'clock. Dad wouldn't make it. He'd still be in Jacobs in the lock-in. So <laughs> we'd probably start without him. He'd then come through the door like the mad drunk pissed Santa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd, uh, I'd want the dinner to be done so I could watch the Top of the Pops Christmas special at three o'clock. Then Dad'd be coming in. What's this shite? Get them squawky whores off the telly. Why are so many black lads on that? <laughs> <laughs> then we'd retreat to my grandmother's and go down there and watch the, the EastEnders holiday special, drink cans, and my auntie would go around ferociously picking up the cans and keep tidy, keep it all tidy. <laughs> <laughs> Just someone vomited all over the shag pile. Yeah. Granny passes out and <laughs> with a glass in her hand and, uh, and falls all over. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, oh, by the evening, I was always looking forward to at about 5 p.m. the first part of the three-part trilogy of Superman came on. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was oh, always going to watch Superman. Oh, Superman. Christmas Day. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Mother had just got up again. 
<laughs> you stood there hungry in your red underpants <laughs> jumping off the sofa with the dishcloth around your neck <laughs> oh mommy oh hello Michael oh sorry happy Christmas <laughs> his phone is open we can get some chips <laughs> One of my memories of being in my mother's kitchen on Christmas Day, very anxious to play my tape of Now That's What I Call Music 10 because it had one of the finest Christmas songs ever. And again, it's wrestling with Last Christmas is one of my favourites. Fairy Tale of New York by The Pogues. I think everyone loves this. Would I be correct in saying? <laughs> just saying so. on, I'm, just, I'm just writing my suicide now. Don't mind. <laughs> Yes, uh, Fairy Tale of New York was recorded by folk punk band The Pogues, who were Shane McGowan on vocals. We can say that now posthumously. Spider Stacy on Tin Whistle, Jem Finer on banjo, and loads of others I don't have time to mention. The song was developed over a two year period and was originally a duet between Shane McGowan and Pogues bassist Kite O'Reardon. However, O'Reardon <laughs> got married to Elvis Costello and shagged off and left them all behind in 1986. The final version, the one we all know and love, was recorded in 1987 and was produced by Steve Lillywhite. Uh, and he was also married to Kirsty McCall. And this is how Kirsty would come to duet with Shane on the track. I, I used to kind of fancy Kirsty back in the day. Really? Yeah. She's quite pretty in a, you know, kind of a, a normal girl next door type of way. I thought she looked like Alison Moye. <laughs> You're looking at me aghast. <laughs> what? What was that song? I don't want to save the world. I'm, I'm just looking for New, New England. England. Yeah. And it was a great lyric on it. I put you on a pedestal and you put me on the pill. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> That's what I did to make you our friend. Yeah, so Kirsty, once you hear those first lyrics come in, it was Christmas Eve in the drunk tank. You realise straight away, this is not Cliff Richard. Definitely not. It's not just another sentimental, cheesy Christmas tune. In fact, it's quite a hopeless story of an Irish immigrant couple down on their luck in New York at Christmas. Fact. Did you know that Shay McGowan's first band was called The Nipple Erectors? I didn't. Or The Nips. The Nips for Before. short. Fact. Did you know the NYPD doesn't even have a choir? That's The closest insane. thing to it is an Irish pipe band who were used in the music video. And they didn't even know Galway Bay. They were actually playing the Mickey Mouse Club March. <laughs> M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-C. And of course, being Americans, they were wearing tartan. They were a bit confused and they didn't even have Irish pipes. Fact. The story behind it is the early days of the band when their manager, who was a man called Frank Murray, wanted them to have a big hit to kind of really launch the Pogues. His suggestion was that they do a cover of a Christmas song. An easy win. Jim and Shane decided to work on an original Christmas song instead. Once they'd completed the lyrics, Elvis Costello, who seemed to be a big hanger-on of the band, asked Shane the question as to what he was going to call the song. And he suggested, Why don't you call it Christmas Eve in the drunk tank? <laughs> Shane wanted something a bit more pretentious. So he chose the song title from a book that was sitting across from him in the recording studio from Irish-American author J.P. Dunleavy and his 1973 book, A Fairy Tale of New York. The video features Irish-American Matt Dillon as the NYPD patrolman who arrests the intoxicated McGowan and manhandles him into the drunk tack. Do you remember Matt Dillon? Of course, something about Mary. Matt Dillox. Nobody's going to understand that, but okay. <laughs> we'll keep it for our version. Fact. The song missed out on the Christmas number one in the UK charts when it was first released in 1987. It was kept off the top spot by the Pet Shop Boys, Always On My Mind. 
Frank Murray, the Pogues manager's reaction to being pipped at the post was... We were beaten by two queens and a drum machine. <laughs> now, Shane McGowan, he'd like to patch up boys prior to this, but safe to say he was no longer a fan. and was a little bit bitter. You're a bum, you're a punk, you're an old salon chunk lying there almost dead on a trip in that bed. You scumbag, you maggot, you cheap, lousy faggot, happy Christmas, you ass. I pray it's our last. He knows every lyric to it. Indeed, a Christmas classic. Which is very impressive about this song is that it is very difficult to create a Christmas song. The fact that this is an original composition and it has gone on to become a very beloved Christmas song and it contains lyrics that nowadays might not pass the censor. And Shane, Shane, this is exactly his peeing to the world. Fact. Fairy Tale of New York earns the Pogues 470,000 euro a year in royalties. See, this is why he can continue to be drunk <laughs> and never record anything as good again. Fairy Tale of New York. It's a good song. And it's another one that as soon as it comes on, wherever you might be. Yes, ubiquitous in all bars and parties and houses and cars at Christmas time and workplaces. That's and the factory floor, spewing out of speakers. Puts everybody in the mood. That red faced colleague of yours hanging on your shoulder, reeking of B.O., saying, let's play Spitting this one. Spitting Merry Christmas into your face. Yeah. <laughs> Come, let's play Fairy Tale of New York. I always thought there was something about you. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it from me. Is that it from you? Not yet. One more. Can it be quick? He says. Yes, it can. To close off today's Mostalgia Christmas special, I want you now to forget Cliff Richard. Forget Wizard, Slade, Wham, The Darkness. The all-time Christmas reverie is by Danish scrotum-clenched screecher King Diamond. Originally, <laughs> originally released on December the 23rd, 1985 on Roadrunner Records and reissued again and again and now by Megaforce this year of this recording. The man himself, Kim Bendix Peterson, says this is the first King Diamond song that was ever released and was originally performed live back in December of 1985. It's very special to us and we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. That's the liner notes for the current reissue. If Top of the Pops had a Christmas special, this would be number one this year. Because I would go and buy it. King Diamond was and is the singer of Merciful Fate. Formed with guitarist Hank Sherman. Why was his name not Tank Sherman? In 1981, releasing their debut effort Melissa in 1983. Inspiring a then nascent Metallica to gargantuan riffage. And who returned the favour by covering three of the Melissa songs on their Garage Days Incorporated album in 1998. Played on the Friday Rock Show on the 11th of December, 1987. This is Christmas for me. Huddled, frozen-fingered over the balsa wood table in a 19th century cellar, warmed only by the sounds from tiny speakers. Here, there's no presents for Christmas! Yes, mosh! Indeed, King Diamond, the greatest Christmas single of all time. And who would dispute this? And there we leave it for our festive nostalgia. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did revisiting past Christmases. We will consign this nostalgia now to the digital realm of forever being played every Christmas and we'll look back on it as we get older and more unsuccessful as we are already. Adrian, I wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And to all our listeners, a Merry Christmas 
one and all. Hooray! Bye.